Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, and as ever, I'm your podcast host. In this mini-series, we're exploring and celebrating The House of Psychotic Women, the seminal book by Kayla Janice. What do you think? Go ahead, be honest, just tell me. You think I'm insane? Do you know these women wrestling in the green of blood? No! I disgust you! I'm sick on you! You hate me! But it's difficult, don't you understand? It is difficult! I didn't want it to Over this mini-series, we have been interrogating The House of Psychotic Women, a book of film criticism, a memoir, and a topography of female neurosis on screen. I've been talking to filmmakers whose films have a psychotic woman at the heart of them, about a film featured in the book that's inspired their own in some way. I've spoken to Prana Bailey Bond, Alice Lowe, Deborah Haywood, Hannah Barlow, and Kane Sennis, and now it's time to talk to the author herself. Kayla Janice. Now, this episode is taken from a live recording of a conversation we had at Matchbox NA's Word Weekend, so the quality of the audio is not the greatest, but the conversation itself was, in my opinion, outstanding. It was a real honor to speak to Kayla about her programming, writing, and the legacy of the book, so I hope you forgive the audio and focus on the words. If you enjoyed this episode or this series, do let me know. It means a lot and you can find me on Twitter at AnnaBeDemented or support the podcast over on Patreon where we publish regular bonus episodes. You can also leave us a review at Apple or Spotify Podcasts. We'll be back early next year with a new full season, so a little review of the podcast really does help while we're on hiatus. And with all of that said, please join me in the house of psychotic women. I'm genuinely only able to say that I am because of the woman that I'm about to um, host on stage. So before I introduce her and ask you to clap once more, but harder, um, Kayla Janice is a multi-hyphenate of the film world, a film programmer, a festival director, filmmaker in her own right, the author of House of Psychotic Women, the editor of many other books, a former cinema owner, festival director of many a festival. Um, I haven't even begun to cover the amount of projects 
and work that she's done that has influenced and inspired a whole generation of filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers, myself very much included. So please put your hands together for Kayla Jenny's. I'm laughing at one of the captions because it said I'm from the film wealth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wish I was from the film wealth. Oh, we all wish we were from the film wealth. <laughs> but um, you know, the I wanted to hype you up and really um, begin this conversation because there is there's so many things that we could be talking about. So I'm gonna try to ask you about some of the key pieces of work and bodies of work and projects that you've done. Um, and the very first one, and I wasn't joking, I didn't know what a film programmer was until I saw your work. So I wanted to ask you, what drew you to becoming a film programmer? Kind of what was your entry point into that world? It was kind of an accident. I think like back when I started doing it, most people didn't know what a film programmer was, including me. Um, so I had a little fanzine that I used to make. I worked at a video store for many years and I made like a horror fanzine and I would mail order movies and I would um, like, I, I mail ordered movies from European Trash Cinema, uh, Video Search of Miami. Um, there was even some British companies that I would get stuff from. Uh, David Gregory, who I work for at Severin now, used to have a company called Exploited that had VHS tapes. And uh, so I would buy stuff from them too. And so I would get all this stuff and I would like review these things in my fanzine. But in Canada, we have obligatory ratings, sort of like you guys have obligatory ratings here, right? And uh, so we, we weren't allowed to, even though I worked at a video store, we weren't allowed to just put these movies on the shelf, even if they had officially been released, like by a company somewhere, they had to have a Canadian distributor, that distributor had to pay for the rating. And all the ratings were different each province and so it just ended up becoming really obstructive for you know like small shops like ours to be able to have obscure movies on our shelves and you know we just did it illegally anyway but <laughs> but um but that was sort of how I started was that I would review these films in the fanzine and people you know customers would be like but how can we see the movies how can we see the movies we don't know how to see these movies that you're reviewing and so there was like this little micro cinema in town. This was, um, I lived in Vancouver at the time. So this was like 1999. And um, I went to this micro cinema and I asked, uh, I gave them a list of films and said, if you ever want to play horror films, like here's a list of films you could play. And then I could probably get people to come out to it because I have a horror fanzine. And the guy's like, oh yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, see you later, crazy person. And, uh, and then like a few months later, he called me and was like, okay, I'm doing a calendar for June. And uh, like, what dates were you thinking of for your horror festival? And I was like, I don't have a horror festival. And he was like, oh, I thought you had a horror film festival or something. That was why you, and you wanted to like rent the theater. And I was like, oh, well, how much is it to rent the theater? And he was like, $200. <laughs> which was like $200 a night. But even then, that was cheap. That's it's ridiculously cheap now, but even then it was cheap. And I had just gotten my student loan. And so I just was like, I'm going to just use my student loan and put on a horror film festival. And so that's like how I started doing it. And so the first year I did it was totally, I would say 70% of the movies were illegal, shown <laughs> illegally. And then there was like some contacts I made once I decided I wanted to do a film festival. Um, 
I found I had some mutual friends with like Mitch Davis, who was the programmer at the Fantasia Film Festival. So I got introduced to him and it was really kind of through him that I got the first handful of like legit move uh, film bookings, you know, like where I, you know, I got in touch with York Bookwright and I played his films. I think the first year I may have played like Necromantic and Dertotis King or something. And I played those legally and um, Singapore Sling was another film I played legally. Um, but I also played tons of them, things illegally, like Possession and Gerald Cargill's film Angst. And I'm trying to think if I played Dear Fan the first year. Um, I did at some point. And um, God, I played like Lizard in the Woman's Skin and Deep Red and Breakfast at the Manchester Morgue and like all these like classic films that had just not been released in Canada, you know. And uh, so the first year was like crazy. It was gangbusters. It went amazingly. Um, and, and it was also great because I had no idea that there were that many people interested in horror in Vancouver because you always think like you're the only one. And, and so that was the first time that I saw all these people just come out of the woodwork and like come to this festival. And so then I just kept doing it because I was like, oh, there, there's an audience here for it, you know? So that was by, totally by accident. And you kept going and kind of kept curating and programming for festivals, running your own festival. And then, you know, after that finished, setting up another festival and all these projects. Now, what about the, the programming itself and the festival environment in particular keeps you come, coming back and kind of kept you setting up new ones and constantly building on that? Well, I think like, you know, throughout the year when I'd be looking at films, anytime I saw a film that like moved me or resonated with me or whatever, I would just be like, oh, I would love to show this to people. You know, there's like this instinct to, to share it with people, you know, and that was something that I think I always had, you know, like according to my, my neighbor who lived across the street from us when I was a kid, I went back to visit as an adult and uh, uh, you know, and she asked me what I was up to. I said, oh, I'm running this horror film festival. And she's like, you were always organizing things in the neighborhood. And I was like, what do you mean? Like what? She's like, you organized a circus. You had all the kids <laughs> playing different roles in the circus and stuff. And she's like, you made a haunted house and all these things. And I was like, really? I barely even remember doing these things. But I realized that that was just an obvious thing. But if I was excited about something, it wasn't enough for me to just be excited alone about it. Like I always wanted to like get other people excited about it. And uh, so, yeah, so I think the fanzine was like that too, because I mean, there's no reason I had to be spending so much time like writing reviews of movies, except for some weird compulsion to share the films with people. And then the festival was an outgrowth of that. And, you know, I had a friend named Sam McKinley, who was kind of like my best friend uh, that I hung out with when I lived in Vancouver. And the two of us would just watch movies like nonstop, you know, um, like I would just be at his house. He lived across the alley from me, you know, and we would just like watch movies nonstop. We both were like obsessive mail ordering people, him much more than me. And, um, and so we were just constantly getting all kinds of obscure films. And then it came down to like trying to track them down to see if we could show them at the festival. So I think it's just like partially there's there's definitely like a compulsive aspect to it because a lot of times I would ask myself, 
why are you doing this and why are you especially because it costs all, all my money that I made at the video store you know like I was so poor I couldn't buy socks or anything like that because I was spending all my money shipping 35 millimeter prints across the world because back then it was not DCP or anything everything was on film so um yeah there was no blu-ray there was you know nothing exhibition quality other than 35 millimeter or sometimes like a digi beta or some tape or something like that but it all involved shipping by a courier and having insurance and all these things and so it was like quite a bit of money you know for putting on these things and then plus I started having guests you know so I started like inviting people to the festival which I would also have to pay for and I didn't have that many sponsors or anything so I often would ask myself like why am I doing this like why why do I feel the need to spend all my money and all my time putting on this festival for other people when I could just sit at home and watch movies myself you know um and I thought I, I came to the conclusion it was like a mental illness you know <laughs> it was like a sickness that I had yeah um which I think like after all these years I have finally gotten to the other side of it where I where I stop myself from putting on events I'm just I think about it the wheels start going and then I'm just like Nope, somebody else can do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm very familiar with that particular compulsion. No, put it in a box. Not for me to organize. Yeah. And where was writing at this time? So, you know, you were doing all this organizing, you know, setting festivals, bringing guests over, bringing video by film friends over. But where's, you know, were you still writing reviews for the fanzine? Were you, were you thinking about the book already? Kind of when did that start cooking? I, I was writing my fanzine from like 1997 until about 2002 or three or something like that. Um, and it was like quarterly, you know? So, and I don't know how regular it was. I think ultimately there were like 12 issues of it. But, I, so I wrote a lot of stuff for those. That was also the beginning of my kind of like editing work because I would get other people to try to write stuff for the fanzines too, so that it wasn't just me. Um, and the more the festival kind of took over my life. And then I got a job at the Alamo Draft House as a programmer in 2003. And so then I was like fully working full time as a programmer. And so the fanzine kind of had to end because I just didn't have time. But I started, the first book I did was this little book um, called A Violent Professional, which was about an Italian actor named Luciana Rossi. And it's just like this little fluff piece that's very inspired by reading Teen Beat magazines and stuff <laughs> as a kid. That's all like, I rate all the movies by how much screen time he has and how good his hair is. <laughs> so it's totally ridiculous. But it was beautifully designed by a guy named Rob Jones, who at the time wasn't very well known, but went on to be like the White Stripes main designer and stuff like that. So the, the layout of the book is incredible. Um, and so I did that book while I was working at, uh, at the Alamo, and, uh, and it came out in 2005. And House of Psychotic Women, I had kind of started working on it in little spurts back still when I lived in Vancouver. So it was definitely before 2003 when I moved away. Um, and so it came out in 2012, and I always sort of say it was about 10 years, you know, that I had been writing little bits here and there on it, you know, and then it was really like the last two years of that, that it became much more intensive writing. And I often rewrote the stuff that I had written earlier. Um, but I would say, yeah, about 2002, 2003, I started working on it. 
And it just took me that long partially because I was, I had a full-time job that was very hectic, but also I kept being very uncertain about the structure, you know, um, for anybody who has read the book, it's, you know, it's like memoir mixed with film analysis and it's kind of transitioning, you know, between these things through the book. And I just didn't know really how to do it. And um, like, I wasn't sure if I should have like a chapter that was about my life and then an essay about a film and that, you know, if it should be much more divided that way. And then I decided somehow that I just wanted to like meld it all. And I wanted the analysis of the films to kind of stand in as my self-analysis of like whatever the situation in my life was that I had just talked about related to that film. So instead of analyzing my life or analyzing my mother, I would analyze the mother in the film. And that would kind of be help me to understand my mother better, you know, like things like that. And, um, and so, yeah, so going over the structure and trying out lots of different types of structures, you know, like I had all these old documents that I started writing a different way. And then I was like, oh, forget it. But I think I still even have some of those old documents somewhere. Um, yeah, so it was just a lot of it that took so long because I had to figure that out. Yeah, and this is one of the things that continues shifting in the book. When I first picked it up and I read it, when I remember it, I remember only focusing on the, the film history stuff and film analysis and like taking notes of all the different films that I've never seen or heard of before. And when I reread it, the memoir stuff was the stuff that really stood out to me. Um, maybe because I was a different person as well reading it. And I'm wondering kind of how, you know, how much of yourself did you ever kind of battle with yourself how much of yourself to put in there alongside all this now all the film analysis and film history and the knowledge that you're bringing into the book yeah I mean I knew that the it, the book had to have pretty much everything like it had to be uh pretty open and I mean there's lots of stuff that's not in it from my life that's happy which is unfortunate because like I only talk about traumatic incidents because I'm talking about these films right and so so unfortunately, it's definitely led to situations where people think my childhood was much worse than it was. And they think I have had no joy in my childhood at all. But I was like my stepdad, who many readers of the book think is a total monster, um, was my favorite parent. It's like he was the most violent parent, but he was also my favorite parent. He's the one I got along with the best in other ways. You know, like he was like uh, a horror fan. I spent the most quality time with him. Um, you know, but unfortunately, I don't write about a lot of those things because I'm focusing on like traumatic stories. And so, and it, so if I had the book to do over again, I might try to insert more of that. Um, but uh, I'm trying to remember what the question was. Oh, how much of myself to put in? Um, yeah, I knew that it kind of had to have most things in it because I. I kept thinking of like, if I was going to use my personal anecdotes and my personal life to talk about these films, I couldn't just say like, oh yeah, I relate to these films because, you know, I had similar things in my life or I associate that with a memory that I had. I couldn't just like then not say what the memory is, you know, because it's like if you're writing an essay and you have a thesis, you have to support your thesis with like, support materials and stuff you know and so I felt like being honest in that way was required or else I had no 
party. So the book fell apart, you know, like if, if people didn't understand why I had those associations with those movies, you know, like I had to sort of go in detail about certain things. And uh, so I knew it was going to be really personal, but I also didn't think anyone would read it. <laughs> so I thought, because, you know, my publisher is not that big of a publisher, and it was also like a weird book you know like it was there was no other book like that at the time and, and definitely not from my publisher he wasn't quite sure how to market it and so i i thought that maybe 500 people at most would ever read that book you know so there's also things where i'm just like flippant about certain films that i wish i hadn't been that flippant about if i knew more people were going to read it you know but i think but I think also there's a freedom in that. Like, if you think nobody's going to read it, you're just like, wow, whatever I think in this moment, that's what's going there. You know, that's the best, that's the best way to yeah. is thinking. So you're writing for, you know, for no one in particular. Yeah. No one's ever going to read that. It's yeah. the most honest kind of writing. And even you mentioned that this book needed to have everything. But you make a clear choice, even in the in the subtitle of the book, that you're going through horror films and exploitation films. But how do you, a lot of the films that you write about don't necessarily fit in either of those uh, genres? So how did you know, you know, when enough films were not? How did you know that you had co covered as many as you possibly could? I think I, I think there's 200 in the first edition, and I, I think I was kind of just like I wanted 200 movies. You know, and I wanted in the new edition, I wanted a hundred more movies, you know, and so then it all came down to my mood, what those movies were, <laughs> like, what did I feel like watching that day? And so there are certain movies that should be in it that aren't there just because I never felt like watching that. The whole time I was writing the book. So like, Mulholland Drive is not in it. Mulholland Drive is in it, like mentioned in other reviews, like I'll name drop it. But I'm just like, nobody needs to hear what I think of Mulholland Drive. There's like whole books about Mulholland Drive. You know, it's in like Rosemary's Baby and stuff. Rosemary's Baby is like mentioned in the context of other write-ups, but it doesn't have its own section. And so it's very, it's very, um, it's very subjective and it's very uh, disorganized in a way, but I kind of left it that way because in a lot of my other writing, I do try to be more consistent. I do try to have a balance and make sure things fit together and whatever. But with House of Psychotic Women, because it was always so subjective, kind of like right from the outset, I just let it be what it was. I, I let it document my moods, you know, because I also reviewed everything alphabetically for the most part. So... You can't really tell because of the first and second edition because they're not demarcated in any way, unfortunately, which I forgot to do. I was going to put like an asterisk or something. Like it was like a new one added for the new edition and I forgot. And, um, but it's kind of like if you go alphabetically in the appendix, most of those movies I did watch in that order. So you can actually see drastic mood swings <laughs> from one day to the next of like, how open or closed I am to what a movie is telling me, you know, like all this stuff. And so I kind of just left it like that. So. And, and tell me about kind of the, the original release 10 years ago. You know, you mentioned you thought nobody would ever read it. But what was the reaction like 10 years ago when it came out? So the reaction was definitely positive. There were, there were, I got hate mail and stuff like anybody would. Yeah, I had like a kind of by stranger threatening to kill me and stuff because my whole life he didn't like he didn't like how i treated my husband 
<laughs> in the book. Okay, yeah, that's that's the victim of that story. <laughs> and um, and so yeah, so I mean, there were there were things like this where I, I would occasionally get somebody uh, bothering me about stuff in it, but for the most part, um, the responses were overwhelmingly positive. But it was not kind of like I don't know how. It's weird because I got definitely reviewed like in the horror press, you know, so like, the whole, you know, I knew people at Bangor and Rumorg and all this stuff. So, you know, of course, the, the, a lot of the genre press covered it, um, but it didn't get any really like mainstream press at all, like not like culture press type of stuff. I mean, it was really kind of stuck to the genre, but the, the way the book really got out was from film programs. So it was that um, I don't know whether I first like contacted film programmers I knew or if some of them contacted me, probably a bit of both. But they started doing programs around the book where they would call it the House of Psychotic Women series. And sometimes they'd play like almost 30 movies, you know, like this one off screen in Brussels, like 27 movies from the book. And they decorated their whole bar themed to the movie so they had like sculptures they had made they had a menu you know like all these things and so there would be film programmers like all over the world that did these houses psychotic women things and then there was like in portugal this amazing art exhibit these four artists like put together a show of like paintings and sound design and like all kinds of stuff they had like this a building that was going to be torn down and they just like transformed the whole thing into like a house of psychotic women it was incredible and uh, um, and so it was really through stuff like that that the book started to get more crossover interest and press and things like that was through the film programmers. So that was really interesting. And that's been my model for releasing books ever since then is basically I never go to bookstores. I go to film programmers because I do movie books. So it's, it's, it's easy to like tie in screens and stuff. And is that how you kind of when did you first start realizing the the impact that it was having? The fact that you know even years later people were finding it, people were you know studying it, people were giving it you know, to actresses, to their actors and actresses to read before going into a movie shoot. That it was kind of inspiring this whole legion of people. I would say around 2014 or 2015 was when I started having filmmakers telling me or actresses telling me that their director had told them to read the book, you know, before shooting. Um, and so there were directors like the director of the untamed, you know, for instance, said that he gave it to the whole cast of the movie. And uh, yeah, there's like a bunch of people that said that to me, but I thought, but I started hearing that from people in about 2014, 2015, um, you know, and so much of those movies are, are in the book now that there's a new edition. Um, but so, yeah, it was interesting because more recently I've had people asking me about the influence it had on like people's writing styles, you know? So like at first the, the, the influence of it was really about the movies. It wasn't really about like my memoir or anything like that. It was really about just categorizing these movies into a subgenre together. And then people being like, oh, I really like that subgenre genre too you know and I want to make a movie like that kind of movie so it was not really about me it was really about like those kinds of movies you know that was what people were drawn to and then just in the last 
few years, I would say much more, I've been hearing from people that they were like, you know, it was really weird when you wrote that book that there weren't, you know, people didn't really write personal film books like that, you know, but now it's very common. You know, there's lots of books like that. Now there's lots of, uh, you, you, can, you know, back when I started writing for Fangoria, you definitely could not write an article that was like a personal essay but now it's really common on Fangoria like on the website and stuff you'll see people telling stories of like their trauma and stuff and how and how a film certain film may have helped them like navigate that or whatever and so some people have told me that like the book actually helped create a pathway where it was okay to like have yourself in the narrative you know yeah the book as a whole as a piece of writing is this you know blaze this trail for this format of the autobiography through art or through film in particular. Now, what do you think about, about that as a style of writing? I mean, I, so when I first started writing it, I didn't know if there were any other books like that. I assumed there would be. I assumed there would be and that I just didn't know about them. And as time went on, I hadn't found other ones still. But there was a reviewer recently who talked about my book and she talked about James Baldwin writing a film memoir. And she, and she mentioned a few other writers and I was, and some of the other writers I didn't know. And so I was just like, okay, so there are other people who have written books like this. Um, but often you don't know, you know, like if it's not, uh, you know, like at some point when I was writing the book, somebody told me they thought Walker Percy's book, The Movie Goer, was kind of like what I was doing. Um, which turned out to be very different, you know, but, um, but yeah, I always was curious to know, like, if there were other, if this was a style of writing that predated my book, and if, because uh, I thought it would be really interesting to look at those earlier examples, and so I know now that some of them do exist, but I just haven't read them yet, because I just heard about this, like, in the last month, so. I was about to ask you whether you have read any of them or whether you have read even books or, or essays that have come out since House of Second Women where you can kind of see, you know, maybe not just your own influence, but kind of this genre of film writing or mm -hmm. I'm writing about myself, but I'm actually using myself as a conduit to write about films. Yeah, there was, there's a girl in, uh, a writer named Claire Cronin wrote a book called The Blue Light of the Screen. Uh, which I was actually quite upset about <laughs> because it was had some stuff that was very similar to my book. But, um, and there was a guy from, uh, a friend, friend forwarded me an article of a guy from Nova Scotia in Canada, whose name I can't remember now. And he had also written like a memoir that was like a, uh, and a horror film specifically. So all of these I mentioned are, are horror films specifically. And then there was somebody... Um, I can't remember, I think Will Fowler from the BFI forwarded me an academic book that, and this was interesting because it was an academic book mm -hmm. that was written in the style of my book and academic, we were talking this morning, you never would have been able to write with your personal stories in an academic context before. So that things have changed a lot because this was somebody's book that I guess it was like their thesis that got published as a book and it was that, you know, and it was like in the last year. And it's interesting that you bring up the kind of the academic world. Um, do you see House of Dakota Women kind of as a scholarship as well? And I wanted to ask you whether, you know, the experience of writing that inspired you in any way to then set up 
Mississippi, the Mississippi Institute of Fort Studies. Well, I so I started Mississippi before House of Psychotic Women came out. I started it in 2010. And but in terms of like House of Psychotic Women being scholarship, I mean, I do think these things are scholarship, like all these things, like a lot of the other genre film writers I know that are not academics per se. They, you know, maybe went to school and didn't finish school or didn't get a degree or maybe didn't go at all, you know, but but they do the same level of rigorous research that an academic does. And in many cases, they I find the academics behind them, you know. Um, so a lot of the independent scholars, I still call them scholars, you know, and I don't uh, tend to call myself a scholar, but I also don't deny it if someone does, you know, because it's like that is so it is scholarship, you know, um, it is doing original research and stuff. And so I know that my publisher definitely didn't want it to be scholarly. Like, uh, I remember when Ian Banks wrote a quote for the back cover and it said something about, you know, academic analysis. My publisher was like, oh, can we get rid of that word academic? It's going to turn people off. And Ian was like, no, you cannot get rid of it. It must stay exactly as, as it is. So, of course, you honor Ian Banks and you keep it how it is. But my publisher was just afraid of the word academic. He thought that people would be like, oh, I'm not going to be able to read this if it's academic. I won't be able to understand it, you know. Um, and I think also academia has become more accessible. So it isn't, that term is not as scary as it used to be for people. Um, but Miskatonic, I started in 2010, and it and it was largely because I knew a lot of horror scholars, uh, both independent researchers and ones that were teaching in, in schools. And a lot of the ones I knew that were teaching in school were never allowed to teach the horror stuff they knew. And in some cases, they even had to teach stuff they didn't know anything about, you know, like where they would be given an assignment that like, okay, you're in charge of the drama 101 this year. And they'd be like, I don't know anything about drama. I've never taught drama. And they would have to just do a crash course in it so they could teach this class. And I'm just like, wow, people are spending a lot of money to go to university and be taught by somebody who just like <laughs> Googled drama 101 is teaching them. Like that's bullshit, you know, but, but I knew that a lot of these people had poor expertise. It was just not being tapped by their universities because it wasn't taken seriously. You know, they would often propose courses that would be rejected and stuff. So I'm like, all right, come do your course here. You know, so I just like I had at the time when I started, I had my own venue. So I owned a venue. So I didn't have to worry about whether it was successful or not. You know, um, the, once we started doing Miskatonic at other venues and renting venues, then that became an issue where they were like very much wanting the classes to be more popular or whatever. You need more people and stuff. Um, but when I first started it, it was not about that at all. It was really about just like giving these scholars somewhere to exercise their knowledge and then providing an open door for people to come in and hear it, you know, for very cheap, accessible prices. Uh, I think it's like seven bucks, you know, or something to come and take a class. And so, yeah, so that's how, that's how Miskatonic started. And then it just grew. Uh, I think London was the first branch outside of Canada because in the UK, there's so many genre film scholars. Mm -hmm. So many, so many. I feel like we could have Miskatonic classes for like the next 50 years and still not run out of teachers, you know, uh, which is great. 
I always I feel like even you know in the fanzine days, the UK was always way ahead of the US. Like I mean, in terms of like the quality of the writing and the scholarship that was inherent, like even in fanzine writing here. So, uh, and so that just turned out that that translated into a whole bunch of people who like read those fanzines and went to the cinemas and events that these people were putting on. And then those people went to school and became academics. And when you have that many people who want to do Gothic studies, you better have a Gothic studies department. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was eventually like the horror people just kind of took over because there were so many of them, you know? And so now there are like in the UK, so many like conferences and, people with different niche specialties and stuff. It's amazing. And so that was why I knew Mistatonic London would would work, you know. Um, but yeah, so that's how that started. And I wanna I wanna go back to Houses of Gothic Women specifically and talk a little bit about the book and and the contents of it, the films that you cover. I mean one of the things I wanted to ask you was you know what attracted you about these kind of characters? You know, how did you even start defining your idea of a psychotic woman on screen. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the definition is hard. I feel like my book does not necessarily give a, a, a consistent definition, um, but it kind of started because uh, at the video store where I worked, the customers would always return movies and say, every movie you recommend to me has some crazy woman. In it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and my friend Sam said the same thing. He would be like, oh, this is a Janice special. You know, there can be some movie that, that like, uh, like that had some crazy performance like that. And he would always call it a Janice special. And, um, and so it was just like this kind of feedback from people made me think like, oh, that is interesting. Like I do tend to watch a lot of those types of films films and I really like those films you know why am I drawn to those films and uh you know most people who knew me I mean it was it was transparent to them that they were like whenever you're having a problem with this all the movies you're watching are about that whenever you're having a problem with this all the movies you're watching are about that you know so it's like I'm fine, like, having anxiety about getting married. All the movies I'm watching are about women who don't want to get married. <laughs> and, like, all, you know, all these things. Like, like everybody I knew noticed that I was definitely exercising fears about real things that were happening in my life with movies. And so... Yeah, so I so I knew I was doing that, and I just wanted to go deeper into it. I just wanted to be like, well, what is that? You know, like, um, like is that is that healthy? Is that helpful? Like, is it is it good? Is it bad? Like, I mean, what does it mean? You know, um, is it like escaping, or is it actually helping me to confront? You know, and um, and so that was those were the kinds of questions that I went into the book with. You know. Um, Especially, it's like if you're having a mental un imbalance of some sort, is it is it good for you or bad for you to like have more of it in your orbit? Like have have those kinds of influences around you, like even more by watching nonstop movies like this. Um, and so, when it came to the different types of female characters in the book, um, I mean, really, it was. It's everything from a woman in, in my skin eating her own flesh to, you know, female necrophiliacs to, uh, 
you know, women who kill their own children, you know, uh, and then like women who, as I mentioned in the intro, aren't even crazy at all, like women like in Gaslight or whatever, uh, which I actually forgot to put in the first edition of the book. It's only a second edition, which I thought was hilarious that I forgot to put Gaslight. But um, but yeah, so it was, it, 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 there were really all these different like types of women and all these different levels of like how extreme their behavior was because that's also how I felt a lot of times. I felt like sometimes I was able to keep things under control fairly well and my neurosis would show up in just small mannerisms that most people would notice, you know? And then it would get more extreme and eventually get to the point where I can actually relate to uh, the characters in like possession or the brood, you know, um, or, or the piano teacher, you know, like, I mean, it, it, like my behavior would, was not consistent, you know, like it, it went all over the place. I mean, like, um, I remember I had a friend once who said, like, can you mail me some speed so I can keep up with your mood swings? <laughs> and it was just because, because it can really change in like five minutes, you know? And, uh, and, and it's, so it's a constant effort to like try to not be derailed by my own moods and like behavior, you know, and reactivity and stuff like that. And so, so the women in the film are not really one type because they do kind of follow that, like all the, all the different, the many colors of female uh, emotional disturbance, you know. Um, and so, but I mean, in terms of like some of the movies not necessarily being horror or exploitation, what would happen is that sometimes I think I would, I would order a film or watch a film thinking, it was going to be horror exploitation because something about it looked dark or creepy or something to me. So I would watch it. And even if it wasn't explicitly horror or exploitation, if it moved me in, in the same way, I would kind of just end up including it, you know? Um, so, I mean, like something like Trump Loy that we just watched, would you call that? A, I mean, you definitely wouldn't call it an exploitation film. No, absolutely not. Um, but would, would you even call it a horror film? It's much more like a fantastic no, yeah. in the kind of European sense or like, oh, like in my book I sort of compared it to like the writing of like Jean Ray or something mm -hmm. like this um, you know it's just it's this kind of like European fantasy <clears throat> tradition it's not necessarily horror and a lot of those movies I, I would include because I feel like the horror genre and the horror community they kind of like adopt movies mm -hmm. that no one else cares about like they're just like okay no one loves you we'll take you we'll take you in the horror genre you're a horror movie now you know <laughs> it's like we'll love you and uh, and I feel like that happens where we just have we just have these associations with certain movies as horror films because that's those that's the audience that has like embraced them or whatever you know um and it has a, there's there's a few films that are really sort of lifted up through through the book. And there's one line where you write which stuck with me. And it's really simple, and you just say it all started with possession. So I wanted to ask you specifically about possession. When did you first discover this film and how has your relationship with it changed? Because it is it's a fundamental film in yeah. all of the 200 films that we talk about in houses that got to put in the first edition. It's still it's one of the few that really stand out. Yeah. Well, 
I didn't watch Possession in the 80s when it came out. Uh, I remember the video box when I was a kid, and I never watched it because everybody told me it was shit. (laughs) (laughs) And so I didn't see it until like the mid-90s, and where I was able to get the European version and mail ordering it. And I, I was just like, my mind was blown by this movie. Like, I mean, just, I think the very first time I watched it, I was just fixated on that subway scene, right? It was like all I could remember was that scene. Everything else kind of faded away. And I was just like, it seemed my in my memory, that scene was like 20 minutes long. You know, I was like, oh my God, this scene is like interminable. It just goes on and on and on. She just doesn't stop screaming. This is amazing. You know. Um, and then I watched it again, and you know, a lot of the rest of the movie started to fill in for me. I remember at one point I timed the subway scene as only like two minutes or something. <laughs> but and, but it's but that is the impression I think a lot of people have from it. You know, it just feels like it's this never-ending scene that exists in its own world or something. Um, but I think it was like a puzzle to me, you know, like and so I just kept watching it and kept watching it. And I still wouldn't say I understand it completely, you know, like. I feel like I understand this tiny part of it, but it's not even the same part that like Andre Zawadzki understands or Daniel Byrd, who was like the main uh, champion in the English language of Andre Zawadzki's films. Um, like how I write about possession is not at all how he would write about possession. He sees different things in it. There are different things that are important to him about it, you know, whereas for me, it was like all, all the emotion and stuff was really important and the stuff about identity and, um, And yeah, so it was just, it was an important movie to me because it was so emotional, but I also loved that the husband wants to solve that mystery. You know, he wants to go into the madness with her. And that was really appealing to me too, that it was like, you can actually just go as crazy as you want. And the right person will still try to find you. <laughs> you know, there was something like reassuring about that, you know, that because I felt like I felt like so many relationships and so many friendships and all these things are stifled by the fact that people hold things in, you know, and they don't express how they feel. And of course, <clears throat> we're taught societally that you can't just be like, Wah! you know, like. <laughs> you can't just like melt down in public or scream or whatever. Like people just don't want to have anything to do with you, you know? Um, and, you know, but, but I found that movie like incredibly romantic. Um, even though I think all the men are assholes in it, but, uh, but I still liked that. And, you know, and the more I watch it, the more I think that him trying to solve Anna's problem is really about him. It's not really about him understanding her. It's about his own ego or whatever. But it was like, but when I first saw it, I saw it as this like very romantic thing where you could be as crazy as you wanted and somebody would still love you, you know? And um, and so, yeah, there was just all kinds of things that I got out of that film. And it was just, uh, I just think that 
you know, I, I have it in the same chapter, I think, with like The Brood, mm -hmm. which I feel is such a similar movie to Possession. Like they both came out the same year yeah. and they're both about divorces, like real divorces. And they're both, they both have like this woman like giving birth to weird a creature. Creatures. Birth creature. <laughs> um, like they're like their rage, you know, kill, but kill for them and stuff like that. I mean, the both movies were really weirdly similar, you know. And are there any other films from House of Sacred Women that have, in the similar sense as Possession or The Brood, that have sort of stayed with you over the years that you kind of can't really shed? Yeah, I mean, The Piano Teacher is one. That scared Jessica to death is one. Um, oh, my God. The Mafu Cage. Um, and I wonder if uh, you mentioned before kind of that the horror genre adults sometimes these orphan movies and, and you know, decides to give them another life. Do you ever, have you ever felt, because a lot of these songs, and I'm talking both personally kind of in general, a lot of these songs have been, you know, resurfaced back on the festival circuit and the programming circuit written about because of the book and because of, of you and your work. Do you ever feel um, protective over the films that you've helped resurface in this way? I mean, I don't know if I feel as protective anymore. I mean, I definitely, uh, because, the th because the thing is, like, a movie like Possession, I'm, like, actually sick of watching Possession. <laughs> like, I have now hit the wall with Possession, you know? Um, and so now I'm like, okay, everybody else can write about Possession now. <laughs> it's fine. Um I still feel slightly protective of the Mafu page, I think, um, just because it really, it really just did, Possession still had champions, you know, like it had Daniel Bird and it had Eyeball Magazine, like Stephen Brower's magazine um, was hugely important to those films getting an audience, you know, so it's like in North America, I would say my book, um, tour, you know, may have had more to do with it. But in the UK, I feel like Eyeball was laid that groundwork already for a movie like Possession. Um, but like the Mafu Cage, I felt, I think I felt more protective of because it was, it was something that I had rented from the store that I'd gotten in like the big, you know, the big VHS box. And it just had this crazy cover and of like Carol Kane painted up, you know, behind a cage with like a dead woman hanging in her arms and stuff. And I was like, what is this movie? And uh, and so I rented it and I just like loved it, but like no one else I knew either had ever seen it, ever heard of it, or would even watch it on my recommendation, you know? <laughs> uh, like no one would watch it. And and I remember before House of Psychotic Women came out, it had come out on DVD because I remember watching it again on DVD when I was writing about it. So somebody did release it. So out there somewhere, <laughs> it did have a champion that thought this movie should get a release, but like nobody bought that DVD. Like it didn't, it didn't do anything, you know? Um, and so, but when my book came out and toured, The Mafia Cage was one of the, movies that played in a lot of the places uh, that nobody had seen and people were just like wow you know I remember somebody afterwards like came up to me and said they were wanted to look into buying the rights to the play it was based on so they could like make a theatrical play of it again or something um, like yeah people just thought it was great um, and 
you know, so that one I think I'm a bit more protective of just because I still feel like it doesn't totally have the full appreciation that it should. And also Karen Arthur, who made it, I think deserves to get a lot more attention because she's actually made a lot of idiosyncratic and amazing films. Um, there's one I want to talk about. It's not in my book, but I got to mention it just because it's so good. It's this movie called Victims for Victims, the Teresa Saldana story. And it was a made-for-TV movie that she made about Teresa Saldana, who was an actress that got stabbed like 30 times or something in broad daylight by a crazy fan. And so Karen Arthur made the movie and she got Teresa Saldana to play herself <laughs> in the movie. And so she's going through this shit where she's like getting, it's just this, the scene where she gets stabbed in the street is like terrifying. It's like one of the most disturbing, like it just affected me deeply, you know? And just the fact that she is going through this again and dramatizing it for this movie is crazy. So you got, it's on YouTube. You can find it. Victims for Victims, the Teresa Saldana story. But it's the same woman who made them off the page. Karen Murphy, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I wanted to ask you kind of about the choice to revisit the book. What made you, you know, when I wanted to two questions, but when did you decide to start working on a new edition of House of Sacred Women? Um, kind of what urged you to do that? And how did you start picking out the 100 extra films to add to this canon that you built? Well, I started thinking about it, I think, like two years ago. Like, I think it was like right before the pandemic, I brought up the idea to the publisher of like, what about doing a 10th anniversary? And it wasn't because it was like, oh, the book's 10 years old, let's milk it and make a new edition. It was more that in the last 10 years, there really had been so many more movies made that fit this kind of uh, subgenre, if you want to call it that. Um, but there, all, there were also movies made by people who had been inspired by the book to some extent. And I found that really interesting. And I kind of wanted to, I just, I kind of wanted to like give that to those people in a sense. Like I wanted to have, you know, if they were inspired by the book in some way, I wanted them to then see their own movie in the book, you know? Um, and but then also there were also like a lot more women making making these kinds of films in the last 10 years and so I wanted to recognize that also um so I felt like there were a bunch of reasons to make a new edition and not just because it was an anniversary that was just kind of like the excuse for the timing um but I gotta say it was so fun to put together because compared to the first one because when I started contacting people for images and stuff the first time around I'd be like oh I wrote about your movie in, in my book that I'm putting out can I have a picture and they'd be like wait what is this book I don't know who's the publisher you know like how many copies is going to be printed and then this time around I would contact people and they'd be like oh my god that would be so amazing here's a and then even like people like Osgood Perkins, you know, who made like 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 Black Coat's daughter was like, oh yes, I'm a big fan of the book. I'd love to give you a picture, you know. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing because it was like it was like pulling teeth trying to get pictures the first time, and now people wanted to be a part of this project, you know, because I feel like now it's a project. I feel like it's a project that's all it's like bigger than me. It has its own thing, you know, because there's like people who who interpret the films, um, you know, there's people who have like certain types of films they consider psychotic woman films more than other types of films. But they have their own kind of categorization. 
But then also, like, as I mentioned in the preface too, it's like, the book is really subjective. It's my memoir. So that means it is coming from a really particular perspective. Mm -hmm. And so there is actually room for other perspectives, mm -hmm. writing about these films and writing from their perspective, you know, and writing about films that kind of like, what they're in the mood to watch that day, the things that kind of automatically appeal to them that might be things I didn't think of or whatever, you know? So I'm kind of hoping now that it's got a 10 year edition that I can kind of retire from doing stuff on it. And then, you know, maybe other people can do stuff. And what do you think about, you know, just the sheer number, the fact that you can add a hundred new films for the 10 year, uh, for the anniversary edition, what do you think it says about the Seder genre that there's so many more movies that kind of fit? There were more than a hundred. There was only a hundred I had time to write about. I have another, I have a list of a hundred more movies <laughs> that I didn't have time to include. Um, but I think that, I mean, it definitely, part of it is definitely, um, I think there's a lot of people who think this is like, a new thing, like a new phase of genre or something. It's like, no, it's always been like that. The difference, like horror films have always been uh, really uh, introspective and stuff, you know? So um, the difference is that mainstream press and mainstream producers are paying attention to the genre more and also more like indie uh, producers and directors that wouldn't normally have considered themselves horror people, you know, are seeing the um, all the ways you can maneuver within the genre, you know, to be able to talk about things in an interesting way, you know. And so you get the A24 type movies. You know, everybody calls them elevated movies or whatever, and it's like that term was invented by sales agents only to sell things. It doesn't actually mean anything, and it doesn't it doesn't offend me, though, either, because it's literally just a sales term. It is a sales term made up for salespeople, and the press started using it, and then unfortunately, people who don't know that much about horror think it's a thing, that it's like a type of horror film. This is not a type of horror film at all. It's literally any horror film that a sales agent wants to sell to somebody who doesn't like more films. <laughs> but, but these types of movies, I think, have always existed. It's just that there, I think there's more money being put into them now. Like more, more producers are willing to um, let somebody make a really personal uh, genre film, you know. Um, and... You know, like even, you know, like like I, I have used this example before, but like a director like Joe Swander, you know, mm -hmm. who you would not consider a horror director, but he sort of started doing his like indie films on the festival circuit when Ty West started doing his indie films. So they became friends and kind of like knew each other because they're traveling around at the same time. And Joe Swanberg kind of saw the audience reaction to Ty West's films and was just like, wow, I would love to make a film that the audience would respond to in that way, you know? And so he started making movies that, you know, unfortunately got called mumble gore <laughs> by the press and everybody hated that term. But, you know, started making these films that were experimenting with horror, but had a lot of characterization and a lot of dialogue and, you know, a lot of just, uh, just in a, you know, in an apartment or in a cabin or whatever, like talking for long periods of time um 
And, you know, so he wanted to make these kind of movies and you ended up having this really weird hybrid type of movie that existed for a little while because of this, because it wasn't just him, it was also like the Duplass brothers and other people that made indie films started like trying to do these things. And so I think that happens sometimes like where other directors and, and, and press, it's, I think a lot of it is fed by the press too, you know, because like when I started going to genre film festivals, the press that went to them was genre press, you know, and you, you could occasionally by coaxing with like hotel and flights and everything, you could maybe get a variety reporter there or something, you know, or if you had a genre friendly one, Dennis Harvey, who used to write for variety, I don't know if maybe he still does, um, would come to Fantasia and cover Fantasia and stuff like that. So you could sometimes have these allies in the more mainstream press, but it was hard. It was mostly genre press that was coming. And then I would say around 2010 or so, that switch where all of a sudden, and I I wonder whether how much the Fantasia Festival's Frontiers market had something to do with that. But it was like all of a sudden the mainstream studios, the mainstream press, all they just descended upon the genre festivals. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden they're watching movies they never would have had time, you know, given the time of day to a year before. Um, meeting, you know, all kinds of young up and coming filmmakers and, and totally changed the genre, you know, because it was like all of a sudden the mainstream press was writing about stuff, which makes more mainstream producers take notice, you know. And so then it seems like, yes, there's like more of this stuff being made. But I but I still honestly feel the horror genre has always made these kinds of movies, you know. Uh, I, there's nothing new about it. It's just that there's more people doing it now, I think. And you, you mentioned in the Bill movie earlier that there's, for this new edition, there's also more female filmmakers making horror movies and making horror movies that kind of have these type of psychotic protagonists. Do you attribute that to anything in particular? I mean, I think that because of uh, just in the last 10 years, women have been given more opportunities to make films, you know, and I would say definitely in the last three, no, last five years, you know, Mm -hmm. since me too and time's up and all this kind of stuff there's like incentives for people to like hire women directors and create opportunities for women and my hope is that we learn some things and that stays you know like we we that that hopefully we don't need those incentives forever because you know i think in one in some ways the incentives are good because they 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 make the opportunities you know it's like nobody's going to be able to tell how good of a director you are if you never have that opportunity so at least it is creating that and so you just hope that the result is that this whole wealth of work that's being created because of these incentives will have an impact when people like stop uh caring about having incentives like that you know um but i think that um yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, there's so many creative women, writers, directors, producers, cinematographers, everything uh, that I know that gets so frustrating, you know, because they're literally like, they'll make a film, like something like Alice Lowe makes Revenge, which is a well-received film everywhere. And it takes her forever to get funding to make another movie. Whereas like some guy can like make a music video and then get to direct Star Wars after that or something. You know, that's exaggeration, I guess. But, but you know, like, but this kind of thing, you know, it's kind of like, or um, 
you know, there's a lot of, a lot of women I know who, who made breakout films and stuff like that, the work that they're being given is in television. You know, they're directing episodes of like The Haunting of Hill House or Fly Manor or whatever, or, you know, like all of these horror shows, which is so great, you know, because there's a lot of great horror shows being made. But there's still obviously kind of like a limit happening in terms of the opportunities that are being given to women versus men. I mean, thankfully, they're working and they're getting work, but um but yeah I, I just think like in the last 10 years there have been um you know somebody took a chance and made a movie with a woman director and it's like if you want to make what any kind of film what kind of film would you make and it's like i would like to make a film about a woman who's really frustrated and wants to kill everybody you know? <laughs> and <laughs> so you know so you get these kinds of films <laughs> that fit my book <laughs> And um, if I have another film, I'll certainly about that too. Um, but I did want to ask you, have you ever considered now that you also became a filmmaker and made um, Woodlands Dark and Days for Witched, this incredible documentary about folk horror for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, have you ever been tempted about adapting House of Sacred Women yourself into a film? I mean, I did pitch it as a TV series with a with a producer, Andy Stark, who did a bunch of Ben Wheatley's films. And so Ben Wheatley's supposed to executive produce it and stuff. But it wasn't really for me to write. It was more like I would be a producer on it and I would be a consultant for the writer. But I didn't have, you know, I didn't have television writing experience or any narrative writing experience at all. You know, and so even though it's based on a nonfiction book, so many elements would obviously have to be dramatized and fictionalized and stuff, but I just didn't have any experience in that. So I couldn't write it myself. So I was kind of at the mercy of like, if other people wanted to do it and it just kept falling apart. You know, there was like a couple of uh, companies that optioned it for a bit and then didn't do anything with it. And so I think it's kind of dead now. Um, but, and, and yeah, in terms of like me actually directing narrative, I mean, uh, the problem is I have a really bad temper. And so I can't be with people. <laughs> like I can't be a director on a set. It would be, you would be reading in the tabloids about my toxic set that I made. And, um, you know, firing nuns or something crazy that I would do. I don't know. But it's like, <laughs> like I feel like I, I would, my temper would be a really, really bad thing with actors and stuff, you know. And um, so... So I, I do have some good friends who are like, you know, come on, you know, you could do it. And I was like, okay, if there's like one actor. So then we started looking at this, like adapting a book I really wanted to do where it was like a woman and a bear. And they're like, okay, the bear is really expensive. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the bear is like five actors, you know, but so that's not going to happen because somebody else bought the rights to the book and I couldn't get it anyway. But but yeah, it was just like, I, I don't know if I could, you know, because that, that aspect of it is really daunting to me. Woodlands Dark and Daisy, which was made pretty much alone in my room. You know, it was like, I would assign, you know, some of the interviews I did myself, but if, if they, people were in the same place as me, but a lot of them, I assigned camera people that lived locally to that person. They would send me the footage. I would be editing at home. Um, you know, there was a lot of free space for me to take time for things depending on what my moods were you know like i was never in a never forced to be in a state where 
I, I'm in a stressful situation. I have to make a decision right now. All these people are waiting for me to make my decision, you know, whatever. So it was like, I was able to avoid a lot of the stress that people have when making films. So, uh, but I mean, if someone wanted to make posts of psychotic women, I think at first I was really re resistant to the idea of just like selling it to someone to make because I thought I would hate it. But now I'm just like, well, you know, I tried to do it my way and people didn't really want to do it. So if someone wanted to just buy it and make it and I would have to just like suffer with the, their bad music choices and stuff, <laughs> then, you know, I guess I would just do that. <laughs> um, and I want to kind of, you know, very likely touch on, on the stuff that you've done, all the programming, filmmaking, um, writing, distribution as well. Is there any of the any of the projects or the, I kind of hate this work because it's very businessy with all the verticals of the work that you've done so far. Um, is there any one particular thing that you find most satisfying? I think I really, uh, I really love putting the box sets together for Severin and I like editing books, like the anthologies that I did. I, I published a book called Satanic Panic um, and one, about Yuletide Terror, about Christmas Horror, and one about, um, uh, well, I did I, I published uh, the book that Sam Deegan did of uh, Lost Girls, the Jean Valen book, which I still did like, tons of work on. But um, I really like putting together those projects, and I feel like the box sets I've done for Severin films, are, it's a really similar process. Um, you know, you're sort of like picking people and getting them to work on stuff, and, you know, you can pay them money, which is nice. Um, working with artists and just like, you know, just making it exact, you know, nitpicking at it until it's exactly how you want, you know, um, and yet feeling like there's a support system there. Like, I feel like when you do an anthology book, because you're not writing the whole book, usually I would write like one chapter and then everybody else would write a chapter, you know, and so it takes some of the burden off of, you know, the books don't drag out as long because it's like, if everybody has a year to write their essay, and then in a year and a half, you can have a book, you know? Um, and yeah, and then the same with the Severn box sets I've done. I did the folk horror box set, the House of Psychotic Women one. I have a couple other ones that I'm working on that I can't announce. Um, but yeah, I find those really satisfying because you're just kind of like putting pieces together. You know, you're curating and putting pieces together, but it's very like low stress. And how important, you know, um, I find this a very, programming specific question because you put so much work into putting together a program, finding the films, finding the guests, producing a festival or an event. There's so much invisible work that goes into putting on events like this, you know, festivals like this, that you, when everything goes right, you never see that work. You never really see behind a curtain. Yes. You only really see it when something goes wrong and people start complaining. But was there ever an impetus for you with perhaps with House of Secret Women or the box sets or the books that you've edited and published? Was there an impetus to kind of have something tangible, like a physical yes, thing? Yes, absolutely. Because, yeah, when you're programming, it's very hard to capture what you did, you know? And I remember applying for a job once. It was like 2014. So, I mean, it was like less than 10 years ago. I was applying for this job in Toronto. And I gave them my CD and they just were like, if you've done all these things, how come I've never heard of you? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but 
But it was like they didn't believe me that I had done all that stuff. And there was kind of no way to prove that I had done all these things. Like when you were programmed, if you're coordinating events, all the events I did for the Alamo Draft House would just be the Alamo Draft House that was credited for things, not the individual people who did all the stuff. I mean, now they finally have a page on Fantastic Fest website that lists the staff and their roles, but that only happened in the last few years, you know? So there was so much unseen labor that happened there. And some of the stuff I did was crazy. Like I was in charge of some major projects, but there was like no way to prove it, you know? And so then I would have my CV and people just wouldn't even believe that I did those things, you know? And so, yes, when it comes to doing books and box sets and all these things, there is something that is like a relief that there's like a thing you can hold in your hand and be like, I made that, you know? Um, yeah. And, and kind of as a, as a follow-up to that, how important it is for you to, to have your work, especially that kind of um, legacy work with the programming stuff, or, you know, project that maybe you've established and then other people have taken on. How important would be to have that documented for yourself to have that properly credited to the work that you've produced? I mean, it's important for me to be credited, but not enough that I have actually done it for like kept documentation properly. Uh, my own archive keeping for myself is terrible considering I generally have a collector mentality. And so I will collect all kinds of things related to other people's careers. And I have very little, you know, stuff from my own because I just, I don't know, I end up moving and then I throw it out or whatever. Um, but, but I do get really mad when I'm, not, when I'm not credited for something I did. So I do have to get better about that. I mean, like, it's like one of the things, like, um, I always tell writers and stuff, for instance, is like, if you write for magazines and you write whatever, it's like, you have to keep, uh, like if it's for an online magazine, like you need to make your own website and keep all your articles and stuff because any day they could just like stop doing their website and take it down and then all your writing will be lost, you know? And yeah. And, um, you know, considering and, you know, thinking of, of, of wrapping up a conversation here, but I wanted to ask you with this tour, um, in particular, I know it's kicking off here, but all the activity that's been surrounding the 10th anniversary of the book, the new edition, um, what have been some of the most surprising or perhaps moving parts of this whole experience of accessing the book, talking about it again? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the whole thing has been really moving to me. The whole thing is, I mean, anytime you make any project and people come up and tell you they like it, uh, is like, I never know what to say, but I, but I, but I feel it a lot, <laughs> you know? And so I feel like this 10th anniversary has been a lot of that because I feel like when I was just selling it going around the first time, people hadn't read it yet or whatever. So people are kind of like, Oh, whatever. I'll just check out this book, I guess, you know? But now it's much more like the people interacting with me on this 10th anniversary one. A lot of them have read the book already. And so uh, so it's just, I feel like there's all this like love coming at me that's really nice. And, uh, and especially because, you know, when you write something like that personal, um, it is really good to get that back, you know, because you feel like you give a lot of yourself telling a story that way. And so, yeah, so, so 
I don't know. I mean, it was really moving. For, for instance, at the Fantasia Film Festival, they gave me an award, and that was the first festival I ever went to. You know, like when I first started my festival, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't know anybody. Like most of my film festival friends and stuff like that, I met that year at that festival. You know, the first time I went. And so then it was kind of like this weird thing getting invited, you know, when Mitch Davis asked if he could give me an award at the festival. And he was just like, oh, we want to give you this such and such award. And I was just like, that's the same award that Ted Kotcheff got, you know, like, I was like, how is that possible? And, uh, but it was just incredibly moving to me that um, this friend, Mitch Davis, had basically been the one to legitimize my career, giving me those first early connections, you know, like I would not have had a it probably would have just been that one year playing illegal VHS tapes, <laughs> you know, if it hadn't been for him. So to be back there after all that time, I guess, you know, it was like almost 25 years later, you know, and he celebrated at the, as like a professional at the festival where I was just like a kid who didn't know anything, you know, that was great. Um, you know, to, to wrap up the house, it's a critical conversation. Do you feel dumb? with that book, with that project at this point, or can we expect it 20 years? <laughs> I definitely feel done with it. I'm so, I'm like, stick a fork in it, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, like, I, I alluded to another possible edition in the preface, mostly because I felt like, you know, you could make another edition that doesn't have the horror and exploitation requirement that could just be any, you know? But I think that requires, like, 600 more movies being in the book, you know? So... Is that something I want to do? I don't know. I mean, I really, I, I have a lot of interests that I want to do other things, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> this is the last hurrah, I think, for me. <laughs> um, Kira, thank you. I mean, thank you so much for all of the work that you've done in general in your whole career. And specifically, thank you for House of Psychotic Equipment both personally, and I think not just everyone in this room, but everyone who's running over the past 10 years and has gone to all the screenings. So thank you again for this conversation. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you guys for being here. Yay.